think as you get older, there's a little bit of a game sometimes we play when you're younger, but you're an adult. You play the game, where were you when? And there are events, whether it be in our personal lives or in our national lives, that we can definitely declare where we were at a particular time. I can tell you exactly where I was when I met Cindy for the first time. And, you know, if you know me, if you've been around, you know the story that we met on a bus coming back from Dallas, Texas, after being at a a big Christian gathering down there. I go all the way back. I can remember when John Glenn orbited the earth. I was sitting in the library in the Stevens Elementary School and they rolled in the black and white television for us to sit there and watch. I remember where I was when JFK and the announcement of of his, uh, his assassination came out. I remember when Ronald Reagan got shot. I remember where I was when the 9-11 towers came down. Depending on your age, you probably remember some of those. And you can say, I was there. I was at that place. The, the, the event was so momentous that that moment became frozen. I realized something this week. I realized that's not only true of events. So I was studying this passage. I realized that's true of a few scripture verses. That I can remember exactly where I was. When the significance or the meaning of that verse became very, very real to me. And as I was thinking about that, I thought about what are those verses? Maybe you can do the same thing. What are those verses that, if you think about it, when they became real to you, you can, you can almost experience the, the surrounding again because they had such significance. I thought about some of those verses. I remember where I was when I first came to understand Nahum, chapter 1, verse 3. I know, you had your devotions in Nahum this morning. I was actually counseling about three or four people that had been terribly sexually and physically abused. And I remember sitting in my office, I was a counselor at that time, just thinking about the things that they were struggling with. And I read Nahum. And I read these verses. The Lord is slow to anger and great in power. And then I read... The Lord will not leave the guilty unpunished. And that just struck me. And I thought, I have something to say to the people that I was going to be meeting that week and about God's justice and that God makes things right. I remember 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21. I was sitting on an airplane reading a book by John Stott on the, Christ, uh, the, the cross of Christ. And as I was reading, he quoted first, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21, that God in Christ was reconciling the world to himself. And the sense of the Trinity, 
that this wasn't the father treating the son in this mean way or God treating this human Jesus. This was God himself paying the penalty for our sins. And I thought, that's astounding. I remember my dorm room and the, the, the desk that I was sitting on when I was reading Hebrews chapter 10. And I came across that passage where God says, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place. And I remember being astounded by the amazing privilege that was mine. That only the high priest, after going through all of the ceremonies and all that he needed to do, could enter into the holy place in the presence of God. And yet because of Christ's work for me and my faith in that, I could have confidence to enter into the very presence of God. And then there's Isaiah chapter 1, verses 10 through 20. I can tell you exactly where I was. I was on the, my right-hand side of the choir room at PCB, Philadelphia College of Bible, on the eighth floor, sitting in the tenor section. And Dr. Lundy got up and began to give a devotional on Isaiah chapter 1, verses 10 through 20. And I realized that I was a part of this choral group, and there was a lot of requirement, a lot of demand on that group. And, you know, one of the things you had to do, you had to know every part by heart. And he would call a tenor, a soprano, an alto, and a bass up front. And he would say, okay, you four sing. And you had to know those parts. But I realized I was singing Bach and I I was singing Handel and I was singing some of the great hymns. And all of this effort and all of this work and suddenly as Dr. Lundy was reading those verses, I realized it could all be worthless. It could all be useless. And instead of pleasing God, it could offend him. It shook me. And I thought, you know, Lord, at that time I was 18, 19 years old and had grown up in the church. And, you know, I went forward more times on the altar call. If coming forward got you saved, I was saved at least five or six times which is theologically impossible. I grew up, when I was 13, 14 years old, I could, I could argue premillennial theology with, a, with an amillennialist. And yet I wondered, was my worship ever pleasing to God? Or was it an offense? Was it something I took pride in because... You know, I could sing and people would notice, or is it because I could speak and people would notice, or was there something more about my worship? Was my worship significant? 
Or was I just wasting my time and God's time? That thought came again as I was reading through and studying this passage. Several people have asked me, why have I chosen Isaiah to, to preach through? And one of the reasons is because I think all of us need to come to a better understanding of what the holiness of God is all about. But the other is, I think all of us need to come to an understanding of the significance of worship. It's not something we just do. It's not just something that is a part of our lives. If that's what it is, maybe just stop. Isaiah chapter 1 says it needs to be so much more. It can be more. It can be phenomenal. It can be eternal. It can be significant beyond what we can imagine. But it can also be worthless. In the book of Isaiah, we're talking about God's holiness. And last week, we looked at the beginning of Isaiah chapter 1, where God calls the nation of Israel, you guys are like Sodom and Gomorrah. And as if you noticed in in Isaiah chapter 1, verse 10, he picks up that theme again. And this time he doesn't say you're like him. He calls them Sodom and Gomorrah. And understand that the nation, now there's a difference in each individual within the nation, but the nation as a whole had become so corrupt, had become so dysfunctional, That God was saying, this is totally unacceptable. In some ways, you're as bad as Sodom and Gomorrah. And you can begin to hear the people (coughs) respond and say, oh, we got to make this right. I know what we need to do. We need to quick run to the temple. We need to quick pray more. We need to bring more sacrifices. We need to bring more bulls. Maybe bull, but we need to bring more. We need to bring more lambs. We need to bring more this. We need to bring more that. We need to do more of this. We need to do more of that. And then God will be happy and everything will be all right. God's response is, I hate that. I hate that. Do you really think you can manipulate me? With the blood of a few bulls, with a couple of coins dropped into an offering box somewhere? Is that what you think our relationship is? You see, Isaiah, and we've talked about this, and we'll hit this over and over, so it kind of gets into our minds that in Isaiah, God is in the process of creating a trusting, obedient people, willing to submit the outcome of their choices and lives to God's wisdom and sovereignty. That God is God and I'm not. That God is the one who sets the direction and, and gives direction to my life and purpose and meaning. Not all the other things that I try to bring into my life. And that the nation said, God, we will be your representatives. Just as when we trust Christ as our personal savior, we declare ourselves to be his ambassadors, to be his representatives. 
God says, I'm in the process of making you in to a good representation of me. And one of the keys to that is worship. But proper worship. For you see, when you come to Isaiah chapter 1 and you begin reading in verse 10, you understand that in response to our sin struggle, God calls us to repentant worship, good worship. When he comes and he says of Israel, you're like Sodom and Gomorrah. You're, 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 you're in, in, in opposition to what I've called you to be. One of the ways that we respond is through proper and proper worship is always, hear it again, always. I want to say it one more time. Always. Okay, I lied one more time. Always about the process of repentance. Worship is not about, did I feel good in this service? Did I feel that sense of, there's a theological word where they talk about the noumena, the, the, the sense of God's presence. Well, sometimes that's there. Sometimes I feel good. Sometimes, you know, I walk out of a service and just ready to go. Other times I'm not, but that doesn't define what worship is. God may choose to do that in my life. God may choose to use it in that way. I've mentioned many times of being at that promise keepers gathering when 80,000 men began to sing holy, 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 Lord God Almighty and did so a cappella. And just the sense, the, the movement of that, that may or may not have been worship. Was it moving? Oh, yeah. But apart from a change in my life, God says it's meaningless. In Isaiah chapter 1, verses 10 through 20, we don't have time to develop it, but this is one of those incredible places where the skill of Isaiah as a writer, as a poet, as a, as a, as a, a prophet in his technical skills comes through there's there's an inclusio meaning an envelope where he begins with a certain phrase and ends with a certain phrase when he talks about the word of the lord the the voice of the lord and he begins and ends verse one uh, verse one i'm sorry verse 10 and verse 20 begin and end with that there's these parallelisms where he says something one way and then he says the same thing in another way and it parallels it and it develops it. And then there's the use of triplets. Remember, holy, 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 that's a triplet. Well, all through this passage, he has these triplets to try to make his point. And the very first thing he wants us to understand in these triplets and the way he develops is he gives us a warning. And that is meaningless worship is not just banal, it's destructive. It hurts us. And even more, it hurts my, my relationship with God, my, my intimacy with him. It doesn't in any way change that relationship in the sense that I am always his covenanted people. I'm always his child. But it changes my enjoyment of that relationship. 
And you see those triplets. You, you see them here in Isaiah chapter 1 and verses 10 through 20. You see where he says of their, 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 their sacrifices, their worship, beginning in verse 13. Here's one of the triplets. He calls them meaningless. He calls them detestable. He calls them evil. Can you imagine that? You walk out of the service, and God's standing out there and says, that was disgusting. That would shake me up a little bit. There's another triplet that God uses, and we'll look at it again in just a few moments. When he talks about their sacrifices, and he says, what are they to me? I have more than enough. I have no pleasure. They have no impact on me whatsoever. Another triplet, verse 14 when he says, I hate them. They are a burden to me. They are wearisome. Wearying. They make me tired. Wearying. Even the way Isaiah writes this, where in, in verses 10, 11, 12, 13, 14, and 15... There's sort of this repetitious over and over and over again where I'm saying, you know, you're just in this road activity and it's meaningless. And as you begin to look at the, the passage, you ask, what makes it meaningless? I, I want to know. I want to know so I can change it. I hope we do. The very first thing he wants us to understand that worship is spiritually destructive when it seeks to manipulate God. Now we need to understand the culture a little bit. Remember, the culture that surrounded Israel, that surrounded Judah, that surrounded them all around them was pagan idolatry. And pagan idolatry had the idea of this. God really needs you. And so, in order to make him happy, you better do this, and you better do that, and you better do this. And in order to satisfy him and, and to feed him, you better do your sacrifices. And the whole idea was, I'm involved in worship in order to get my gods to do what I want them to do. I want a good harvest? I bring a little bit of food. I want a good marriage? I bring a little fertility statue. And the whole idea is, I want to be in control, and I will use worship to do that. I'll get God on my side, because I'll be good enough for him. That's why God says those things, that phrases that we read when he says, it means nothing to God. God says, what are they to me? You think I need this? You think I need your service? You think I need your choruses and your prayers and your singing? Yes, I enjoy them when they're done in, in righteousness and they're done in, a, in an attitude of praise and honoring and glorifying God. It's a wonderful thing. 
But if it's all about manipulation, it means nothing. It adds nothing. Somehow we think our spiritual life gets better because of the things we do. No, the things we do need to reflect the fact that our spiritual life is getting better. And then he says this third thing. It does nothing. I have no pleasure. You see, you think all those pagans and you want to live like they do, believing that they can manipulate their gods. And we have these ways that we think we can manipulate God and get him to do what we want him to do. The whole idea behind Isaiah is God is sovereign. Now, he loves us. He's committed to what's best for us. He's committed to molding us to become the servants that we can be and to enjoy the fullness and greatness of the life that he's given us. That's what he's about in my life. But sometimes that's difficult and struggling. And when we try to manipulate God and somehow get God to do, and we do that in so many ways. God, I I, I want this in my life, so I'll just pray more. Believing that the praying more is a way of manipulating God. It's not. It's a way to bring my needs before God. It's a way to ask him to work in my life and in the situation. It's a prayers are a declaration of submission to God and God's purpose and God's direction and God's will. I'll read my Bible more. I'll go to church more. Should we do those things? Please, everybody, go like this. But not to get. They become an expression of my relationship. You know, if Cindy writes me a love note, why do I read it? So she'll kiss me later? No. Because of the relationship we share and the connection that I long to have and and the, the, the interaction and the relationship. Why do I spend time? One of the things I love to do in the morning is come out and we have that island in our kitchen and, and we'll sit on the stools and we'll talk back and forth for a few minutes. We were doing that yesterday. Why do I want to do that? So that Cindy will give me the lunch that I want? You'd say, that's disgusting. I, I've told the story of, you know, the man he and his, and his, and his, and his uh, fiance were fighting and they came in and and I was doing premarital counseling, and the woman says to me, oh, he's so wonderful. I said, what did he do? He said, well, last week, you know, we left your office, and we were kind of fighting. And the next day, he showed up in my house with a whole bouquet of flowers. I said, well, did you discuss the problem? No. I said, did you talk about what was going on? No. Isn't he wonderful? And I looked at him and said, you're disgusting. They did come back, by the way. What? It was manipulative. Here's some flowers. Shut up. I said that to him. She kept getting more angry. So did he. I think for different reasons. That's not love. That's not worship. That's manipulation. Worship is spiritually destructive when it flows from hypocrisy. Dave, I loved your prayer this morning or the words that you were saying when he talked about the fact that we're called to live a life of worship. 
And as Isaiah is writing this, he only uses one little phrase to, to describe it, but then he develops it through the rest of his book. When he says about you pray and you pray often and I'm not hearing it. And then in verse 16, or actually the end of verse 15, he says, your hands are full of blood. You see, hands should have been raised in consecration. It's a sign of God consecrating, setting apart his people. But instead of raised in praise and honor and glory to God, they're raised with the blood of the innocent. So many times, worship becomes ineffective because all week long, we've lived a life as though God doesn't exist. And then we come together and we want to act as if he does. That whole live a life of worship together is not just a wonderful phrase. It's the very foundation of our relationship with the Lord in our worship. Those of you who have been married, who are married, have heard the phrase, a good relationship in the bedroom begins in the kitchen. In other words, it's building the relationship that creates the intimacy. Good worship on Sunday begins Monday. As I seek to allow my life to honor and glorify God as I seek to respond to him in repentance, as I seek to live out the reality of my relationship with him and to represent his glory, to represent his holiness, to be his ambassador. And then we come together with that experience and join our voices and hear his words and seek him to work in our lives. The third one isn't quite found in Isaiah, but I want to add it because it's so much a part of our culture. We live in a consumeristic culture, in a capitalistic culture. And the idea is we use our money, we use our activity to get what is beneficial to me. And so we begin to believe that worship is about me. Was I blessed? Was I moved? Was I experiencing some kind of unique presence of the God? All those, of God, all those things are, are okay. That's not what worship is about. You see, in our culture, they, they struggled with idolatry. We struggle with consumerism. And worship is spiritually destructive when it's self-serving. When I come here and say, what am I going to get out of this? When we come and say, it's about me being blessed. Yes, God does do that. That's not wrong. But my attitude is, God, how do I bless you? How do I glorify you? How do I honor you? How do I represent you? How do I demonstrate your holiness? And though you don't find it so much here in Isaiah chapter 1, you do a little bit later in the book, This incredible passage I was thinking about, this is one of those passages I'm going to remember where I was. 
when I was reading Amos chapter, it might be chapter 3, verses 4 and 5. But it says this, go to Bethel and sin. Go to Gilgal and sin yet more. He's talking to the northern tribes and he's talking to the women there that he's called the cows of Bashan. How's that for an encouragement phrase? And he says, your worship is sin. One, because you choose to do it in a way that, I, that is in violation of my standards. But then he goes on to say, bring your sacrifices every, bringing your sacrifices every morning, your tithes every three years, burned leavened bread as a thank offering, and brag about your free will offerings. Boast about them, you Israelites, for this is what you love. It was all about them. How do I look? What do I get out of this? What does it do for me? God's nowhere in the picture. It's about consuming. Not proclaiming. And the result of all of that is that Israel stood, the, here it's Judah, the southern kingdom, stood in a place where their worship, their gatherings were detestable to God. See, what we need to understand about worship is simply this. Worship is not doing to get. Rather, it's responding to what I've already got. I have a relationship with the Lord, so I come and I thank him and I celebrate him and I, I proclaim his wonder. I already have a relationship with a holy God. So in the midst of worship, I look to see, God, where do I not live out that holiness? Where do I not live out the presence of your spirit and your life within me? God, I come to hear about you and then allow that to impact my life. You see, as you go through Isaiah, we understand this. Meaningful worship is God's process for transforming us. Yes, it does change us. Yes, it does conform us. If we worship properly. And as you read through this, actually kind of out of order, our worship of God rests upon his grace. That's what he says as he cries to these sinful people who are just corrupt as can be. And he cries out in verse 18, come now. Let us, let us reason together. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be white as snow. They are red as crimson. They will be like wool. God says, let's begin worship where it begins. In the relationship that I offer you by grace through faith. That's where it begins. Beloved, you cannot worship God if you do not have a relationship with him. And you cannot have a relationship with him unless you've accepted what Christ did for you. In the Old Testament, it was a belief in the promise God would redeem us. 
In the New Testament, it's looking back to what God has already done. That that God in Christ was reconciling the world to himself. And that now as a result of Christ's payment of my sin and my faith in what he accomplished, I can boldly enter into the presence of God. I can come into this worship time realizing I'm in God's presence and celebrate and rejoice and be broken in whatever it is that God wants to do in my life. Because I have a relationship with him through Jesus Christ. The New Testament says it this way. But when the kindness and love of God our Savior appeared, he saved us. Not because of righteous things we had done. Not because I brought the right number of sacrifices or gave the right number of money or did the right number of this or had. No, it's because of what he's done. Because of his mercy, he saved us through the washing of rebirth and the renewal by the Holy Spirit. Whom he poured out on us generously through Jesus Christ our Savior. So that having been justified by his grace, we might become heirs having the hope of eternal life this is a trustworthy saying and I want you to stress these things so that those who trusted in God notice it doesn't say can feel good or can feel wonderful yes that comes but our relationship with God has an impact so that we may be careful to devote ourselves to doing what is good And that's the next part of what Isaiah says. True worship is an expression of what is already there. Israel, Judah, you are my people. I have chosen you. We are in a relationship. Now let's live it out. The next thing that God says to them is that our worship of God involves of worship. Yes, the things that we think about to do worship, praying and singing and and standing and rejoicing and testifying and reading our Bibles and giving our gifts and, and telling others about Christ. All of those things are acts of worship. And God wants us to do those things. They are important. Sunday morning is not just one other thing to add to your schedule. God says that here in Isaiah when he's talking to them and we don't quite hear it because we don't have ear, Old Testament ears. We have New Testament ears. But in verse 16, he talks about the, the activities of, of the worship of the Israelites, the, the things that they did, the bringing of sacrifices, the washing and the labor, the, the, all the things that they did. And he says there in verse 16, wash, clean yourself. Cover your sin. In other words, do the stuff that the Old Testament saints were called upon to do. Just like we're called upon to to read God's word and to memorize God's word and to gather together to worship. And we're to be involved in those things, but not in order to get. Because we've already got. And then what Isaiah spends the most amount of time on is this. Our worship of God follows the path of repentance. Remember those triplets? There's two of them here. The first one is the path of repentance. Stop, learn, purpose. Beloved, when we came together this morning, did we come with the idea of, Lord, show me the things in my life 
that I need to stop? Did you come in this morning? And and again, I, I ask this of myself. Did I come in this morning saying, Lord, what are the things you want me to learn? And do I leave this morning saying, what are the things you want me to purpose? You see, you see those three phrases as, as he's developing his, his triplets. There in verse 16, stop doing wrong. Take a look at God's holiness. Take a look at God's righteousness. Take a look at Christ. Take a look at all of those things. Take a look at the word and see the things that should not be in my life. Learn to do what is right. Listen to the things that are sung and the things that are spoken and the things that are declared and the things that are shared. But it doesn't stop there. Seek purpose to do what is right. That's what worship is about. And from there flows the next group of triplets that we're not going to look a whole lot at, but basically it's treat other people well. This morning, my habit on Sunday mornings is I try to get here a little bit before 8.30 and then I'll spend a few moments in my office praying and getting ready and kind of putting my mind where it needs to be and then I get up and get involved in everything. This morning we were running a little bit late. And I know, I know this is hard to believe, but I was barking at Cindy. I was barking at the McDonald's people who were being very, very slow as we were waiting for the breakfast for Austin. And then I came in and I was praying. And I thought, gee, Lord, I'm so sorry that it took me so long to get here this morning. And I could feel the Lord tap me on the shoulder saying, yeah, how do you think I'm going to hear your prayers with the way you were barking at everybody on the way in here? Maybe you need to stop. Maybe you need to learn. And maybe you need to purpose. Now, I don't know if God heard my prayer. But I will say I heard him. Beloved, let's worship the Lord well. Let's worship the Lord with a commitment that says, I'm committed. This is important whether it's my individual worship one-on-one with God, whether it's my corporate worship gathering together, joining my heart and mind with others, or whether it's my life of worship, seeking not to be hypocritical and letting God do his work of repentance. You see, when worship is that, it is amazing. It is powerful. It is overwhelming. And it's worth it. To me. But to God. He enjoys it. He is blessed. He is glorified. He is honored. He is thanked. God enjoys it. So we end with a simple question. 
How's your worship? Let's pray. Father, that worship begins with a relationship with you. We have seen that through the Old Testament. We see it in the New Testament. And Father, we invite all to have that relationship. And every Sunday morning, we take time to invite anyone that's not certain of that relationship to speak to somebody here and to know how faith and trust in your Son accomplishes that. But Father, even more than that, as a gathering of those who most here believe and have a relationship with you, we ask that you would create in us a community of worship. That worship would not be about us, but about you. That worship would not be about manipulation, but of celebration and, and submission. That worship would be an act of repentance. Father, thank you for what that will mean in our lives and for our body, and most of all, for your glory and for your kingdom. And we ask it in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen.